Broadcasting live from the Great Northern Hotel in beautiful Twin Peaks, Washington, I'm Matt. I'm Caroline, and this is an episode-by-episode breakdown and discussion of all three seasons of Twin Peaks. Due to the unfortunate police presence earlier this week, we're offering a free three-day voucher to all guests affected by this incident. Please visit www.greatnorthernhotel.com or tweet us at NorthernLivePod to redeem this voucher. Today, we'll be discussing Season 2, Episode 7, Lonely Souls. This episode was directed by David Lynch and written by Mark Frost, marking the first one that they've solely collaborated on for a while. I didn't check. I probably should have. I mean, at least since the... I should have checked also, but at least since the beginning of Season 2, like, I think maybe the first episodes were... First one or two episodes of Season 2 were them, but... Um, Yeah, we haven't had one in a while, and boy, can you tell the difference when it's a Lynch-directed episode. And also a Mark Frost-written episode, I think. Not to to give David Lynch all the credit, but I am super excited to talk about this episode because I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think we were both a little perplexed last week as to why this one, smack dab in the middle of the season, was them, but... As we get on with the plot, I think it becomes apparent that they felt the need to step in and do this one themselves because it's a pretty pivotal episode. So it begins with all of the sort of main officers of the Twin Peaks Police Department, as well as Cooper and Gordon Cole and Mike standing around drinking some coffee. And Mike repeats his his riddle about the Great Northern sort of again. And I thought it was an awkward opening, but... It's made much better by the fact that despite this ominous pronouncement, Cooper just goes, oh, they're, they're they're waiting for us in the lobby, right? We're good. He just kind of ignores it. Mike's trying to be very full of gravitas, and he's just like, yeah, Truman, all right, we got to go do this thing, right? And Gordon Cole has to head over to Bend, Oregon for some official business, but he tells them that pages of, the di- of a diary were found near the original crime scene of Laura's murder, so they suspect... Well, I guess they don't suspect. We just suspect that it's Laura's diary, right? Well, they they say that um, it looked like pages from a diary, and I think this is what prompts Truman to actually act on. I guess it's already happened at this point in the episode, so what has prompted Truman to act on Donna's information about Harold Smith because um, he says something to Hawk about a warrant to search Harold, Harold Smith's apartment. And he seemed sort of, in the last episode when he was talking to Donna, he seemed to sort of dismiss her insistence that they needed to search Harold Smith's apartment and that it was important and that there was a diary there. But then this discovery of additional pages from a different diary sort of prompts them to to act and to get that warrant to to search his apartment. So that's that's where Hawk is off to. Okay, yeah, because he tells Hawk to go search that. They bring Mike to the Great Northern and basically just parade each guest in front of him. And he kind of waves them off saying that none of them are Bob. And this is a fun scene because there's a lot of clatter and it seems like stamping or something going on in the scene. And at first my thought was, are the Icelanders clogging upstairs again? (laughs) They're not. And as the camera pulls back away from Mike, we see the officers bringing 
people in front of him. So then my thought was, oh, I guess it's just, I guess it's just a lot of footsteps. They just sort of overfolied the footsteps, but then it pulls further back, and it turns out there's a convention of, I guess, Navy officers, like all bouncing balls at the same time. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's just, it was such a funny three stage, like, oh, this is just like a dumb audiovisual joke that serves no purpose other than just. It's just a funny gotcha, I guess, but I like it. Yeah, and and it made me think, too, of what you have talked about in earlier episodes, where it's sort of a, it's a joke that's, the joke is sort of made by the camera and the way that the camera moves and the way the, sh- the shot kind of continually pulls out. So, yeah, that was hilarious. So as, right as they bring Mr. Tajimura in front of Mike, who uh, is not Bob, it seems, he begins to seizure uh, just as Ben Horn also arrives demanding to know what's going on. And it kind of creates a scene. You'd think they would have told Ben, like, hey, we need to parade all of your guests in front of this one-armed man. You would think they need to tell Ben that. <laughs> it seems kind of illegal. I don't know how hotel warrants work, but like, they w- you'd think they'd have to have a warrant or maybe many warrants. It seems weird that they can just do a suspect lineup. Yeah, I'm not sure why anyone in the hotel agreed to do this either. Yeah, oh, well. but... Whatever. Yeah, we can suspend our our disbelief. Uh, Hawk arrives to search Harold's apartment, bungalow, whatever you want to call it, to find that he, it is in very very disarrayed, and he's hung himself. I guess out of out of sadness over what transpired with Donna and Maddie. Maddie tells Sarah and Leland that she's going to head back to Missoula, and they have Louis Armstrong's "What a Wonderful World" playing. Yeah, I love. Also, like, all the little... So I I noticed this before. I forgot that Maddie was from Missoula, but that first shot in the Palmer House, the corner of the painting that they start on, says Missoula, Montana. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. Do you think it's literally just a painting from David Lynch's house? Since <laughs> Quite possibly. Do you I think mean... it's one of his? Oh, boy. <laughs> no, I just... I like... I do... I like all of the little... Missoula references that that David Lynch throws in. I mean, obviously it's set in Washington, so Missoula would be like if you're in western eastern Washington, Missoula is probably the closest big city, like Missoula and Seattle. But I just I like those. I think they're always fun little fun little nod. Do you think there's a thematic reason for them, or do you think he's just putting in Easter eggs of his hometown? Well, it a little bit comes. I I think mostly it's just Easter eggs, but it kind of comes back in a later scene that we'll get to i was a bit surprised to find that maddie had an apartment i would not have suspected that so it makes me wonder yeah. how much older than laura she is and i'd wondered a couple of times like doesn't maddie have like if she's the same age as them like doesn't she have to go to school but she's older so that explains yeah. that for me i did think it was a little bit funny again i don't want to just pick apart plot holes and that's not a plot hole but just that she says like oh it's been great but i really miss having a normal life and then you think about it and it's like i think it's been like two weeks like in real in the in the time of the show it's been about two weeks it's not that long but she's headed back Hawk finds Laura's secret diary among, I guess, just a shred. He's kind of shredded everything, all his papers and books, it looks like, on the floor of Harold's apartment. Uh, and Cooper and Truman see this. And is this is this when they find the note, or is that later? Harold's note. I don't 
I don't have anything about Harold's note in my notes, so you tell me. Okay, I think, I just, I was trying to remember how many times they come back to this scene, but I think it's in this, this scene where they're, as they're, as they're going through, um, in these scenes where they're investigating Harold's apartment, that's when they find he left a suicide note that was pinned to him that Harry or Cooper, Cooper pulls off and then maybe hands to Harry that says, I am a lonely soul, that note, which uh. is where the title of the, well, it says it in French, j'ai un homme solitaire. Yeah. And then the investigation, or the, not investigation, but the, the searching of Harold's apartment is kind of broken up by the camera flashes as they're taking the, like, taking evidence photos of the scene. Um, and I, I liked that. I thought that was a cool, it's a little obvious when they, like, the on the last one where it's, like, flashes on Cooper and Truman, and then it's obviously where they would have cut to commercial, but. It's innovative, think, though. Yeah. Usually you fade to black, you don't flash to white. Bobby and Shelly run into some tension, trying to balance her checkbook. After all expenses, she's left with $42 to live on for the month, with, which Bobby thinks is a good start, but Shelly's not convinced, and they kind of get angry because Bobby says he has to go back to school. He's missing economics as they're speaking, which I think is a funny thing because he's the one balancing the checkbook. So I guess he's pretty good at economics and cares about going to that class because... Which is a bit bit at odds with his uh, general demeanor. Although I guess, I don't know, you know, there's nothing to suggest that he's not a good student. He's just uh, very dismissive of authority, but maybe he is really good at economics. Well, it probably would have made more sense for Snake Mike to be the one that's good at economics. True. His, his cameo in season three skipping way ahead i'm not gonna count this as a spoiler he's like no. a businessman so well uh, but maybe maybe they're both good at economics i don't know but that's true. I, that's true. I like this scene because i do think it sort of highlights that even though bobby and shelly are like about the same age it it does sort of remind us that like shelly dropped out of high school and has kind of been like living as an adult for a while now and Bobby is still just a high school student. He says that he, you know, has to go back home because he can't keep telling his parents that he's sleeping over at Mike's. And it, it feels like he's sort of been just kind of playing at being an adult. I totally agree. Shelly actually has to deal with the fallout from that. Yeah, I think it, it's really good at doing that. Leo comes to life suddenly, scaring them. He screams, and then he kind of hiccups the words, new shoes, a couple times. And in hopes that this will lead to Leo's status of cash that Bobby suspects. He manically insists that Shelly go recover a pair of boots that she, uh, or the receipt for a pair of boots that she brought in for repair his new shoes. Audrey confronts her father, Ben, about One-Eyed Jacks, and I like this scene because she just drops the book on him right from the get-go, and he gives up the act. There's not a big, like, run around, and she just says, no, I know what's going on. You're gonna tell me all the details that I want to know, and in fact reveals that he had tried to sleep with her without his knowledge, which is kind of the point where he sobers up and agrees to spill on himself. And she asks if he knew about Laura. He says he did. He did not push her to go there, but he does admit to sleeping with her, but insists that he did not kill her because he loved her. But that's everyone's fucking excuse. I mean, yeah, it's kind of a running theme. I like this scene a lot. I do too. Yeah, I think it's, again, I like I like any scene where we get Ben Horn sort of caught off guard. Yeah, but it's not overblown. I mean, there's not screaming, really. No one's, like, crying. Audrey's eyes are teary, but it's very subtle. Ben is quiet, and he's just defeated. It's not melodramatic at all, really, and it really works for that. Yeah, well, I think because it, it works so well 
in the context of their characters and what we know about their dynamic and the other scenes that we've had where they've sort of been in exactly yeah. confrontation with each other that it's it's very charged but it's not no the veil of their their dramatic embellished characters drops away and they're both forced to confront their their sort of realities shelly apologizes to norma for having to quit her job which was confusing because i thought she already had quit her job yeah i think i i was thinking about this too because we talked about this with the last episode i think what happened was that she said i don't know whether she actually said this but what what i think she meant when she told bobby about quitting her job was that she was going to have to quit her job to take care of leo and that's why it wasn't that she quit her job because she thought that she was going to be able to live on the insurance money, although she did, but she thought that that, that would be enough to make it worth having to quit her job to take care of Leo at home. Right, okay. So, yeah, she, she sort of tearfully apologizes. Norma says it's fine. They hug. And just then, Nadine and Ed arrive to have milkshakes. And yet again, my mind just glazed over. So you'll notice I have nothing in the notes about what they actually say. But the gist was that Nadine just makes it awkward with Norma more. And their parents are now officially staying. Nadine's fake parents parents are now staying in Europe permanently. And she's allowed to stay with Ed, who she's calling Eddie, which I I think is a pretty, it's a good little touch. It it conveys her immaturity or psychosomatic immaturity. (laughs) And there's a, there's a funny line where she says, well, "Is it? Wait a minute, Ed. Is it my parents' house or is it your parents' house?" And he just turns to Norma and says, "That's right. Uh, she's staying with me." Yeah, I think I these these scenes in this plotline are still not good, but it was at least a little bit tolerable in this episode, just because there wasn't that much of it. But Nadine shatters the glass when she gets her milkshake and with her new super strength. Yeah, she makes that with Ed too. Forcefully. Yeah. As her hands are covered in milkshake and blood. <laughs> yeah. One has to wonder whether Nadine and Ed's parents are still alive. It'd be pretty awkward because, like, what, they're supposed to be in their early 40s here? Yeah, Late probably. Late 30s, maybe? Like, what if her parents just called? <laughs> hey, Nadine, we haven't heard from you in a while. Heard you got in some kind of, had to go to the hospital for, <laughs> for something. Uh, oh, how are you enjoying Europe? Europe? What are you talking about? We're down in Palm Springs. <laughs> Been there for 30 years. I guess the one upshot of the Nadine subplot is that we get we get more Snake Mike, who I think is a welcome character who disappears a little bit. I just like the high school stuff. I like all the high school stuff being involved. I was happy to hear Bobby mention school, even if he didn't go to it. He at least alluded to it. I stand by that way more of this should have taken place in the school. And frankly, there should have been more murders. <laughs> like Okay, well, we get to it later on, but... Ultimately, the resolution of this episode is sort of the climax of the series rather than another. Well, well, yeah, we'll get there. Speaking of Snake Mike, Snake we get Mike. Snake Mike in this episode. Yeah, he's with, with Bobby. They, they hammer apart the boots. I'm not really sure how that works, but whatever. That Leo brought back, or that Shelly, Leo's boots that Shelly had taken to the cleaner, they take a hammer to them and sort of pull the bottom off and they find a cassette hidden in the heel. But I like that they, I like that they bring back Snake Mike 
And I also like that they acknowledge the fact that Bobby and Snake Mike were involved with Leo's criminal activity. And Snake Mike talks about Hank, which I think is a good detail that Bobby must have told him that Hank was the one who shot Leo through the window. So Bobby knows that it, that it was Hank. And yeah, I just, I like, I, I really like that they bring Snake Mike back in and also acknowledge that like, oh yeah, these two were part of the, the cocaine smuggling operation. So, because that, that also kind of fades away. Well, and I, I think it could have been used more in Bobby and Shelley's relationship with his guilt or not guilt, but his, his charade of sort of knowing what Leah was involved in and being involved in it, but having to hide it from Shelley. And I don't think we get as much of that going forward. Yeah, because he he says that Leah was involved in shady stuff, but he doesn't say what or how he knows. And he says that Leo must have had money. And that's when Shelley kind of, you know, gestures around at the house and the, the sort of state of disrepair that it's in and is like, no, of course he didn't have money. Like, you know, look at this place. But yeah, I think like the fact that Bobby knows that Leo had money because he gave Leo, he and Mike gave Leo $10,000 and can't tell Shelly that that's how he knows that Leo had money from smuggling cocaine. Yeah, that that could have been played up more. I think you're right. So I don't know. I think Bobby makes a really good point to Shelly that she should try to get a hold of Leo's truck because it was impounded by the police. And she says, well, he was using the committing of a crime. So they have it and he i think kind of accurately points out well he wasn't actually convicted so you should be able to get that go get that car that's a lot of money those trucks are expensive yeah well also what about the 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 corvette why oh they... yeah what about the corvette I don't know why she... yeah i don't know why she doesn't sell the corvette not to tell shelly what to do with her life but yeah maybe she wants the corvette although it's a sh- you know what we should have gotten really we should have gotten a scene of shelly recklessly driving the corvette around to celebrate the catharsis of like of Leo being out of her life to a certain extent. And then it could have been like really sobering when she like pulls up next to the house after a fun joyride, the hospital's like dropping Leo off or whatever. <laughs> or she has to drive to the hospital to pick him up. And it's really fun, but when she gets there, it's like, oh, joyride over. I'm just rewriting the show now. <laughs> we can move on. You do this with everything you watch though, so. That's really true. Why don't just everyone hire me to rewrite your scripts? I'll do it for Star Wars. I'll do it for a show that came out 30 years ago. I don't care. <laughs> Cooper is telling Diane via recording about the contents of Laura's diary, which includes many references to Bob dating back for quite a while, it seems, molesting her, uh, and that apparently Bob is some kind of friend of her father's, as well as the fact that Ben Horn has some kind of secret that someday Laura would like to expose. And very conveniently, Audrey shows up right then to confirm everything that that secret is and what it entails. Yeah, and so they, because Audrey tells Cooper that her father owns One-Eyed Jacks and that he was sleeping with Laura, this combined with the fact that the diary describes Bob as a friend of her father's leads them to get a warrant for the arrest of Ben Horn. I do think it's funny that Truman happens to walk in right after Audrey shows up to do this. The show's a little bit obsessed with making sure you know, like showing you that everyone is privy to certain information rather than just sort of assuming that like Cooper would just tell him later. (laughs) Ben is in his office talking to Mr. Tajimura and Mr. Tajimura's assistant. (laughs) 
This is yet again. I, this doesn't make any sense. Where did this, this assistant come from? Where did this? Who is this man? Where did he come from? How does Tajimura? And we'll get to this because it's fine. This it's not this plot doesn't end, but at least at the end of this episode, we can stop talking around it. Um, but like, how does how do they have how does Tajimura have contacts in Osaka? Because Ben says that Jerry just got back from talking to his contacts to Tajimura's contacts in Osaka and reviewing his references. Who are these contacts in Osaka? Who are the references? What? What? <laughs> I think we can explain away the assistant by just maybe Tajimura placed a classified ad that was like, need local Asian man to pretend to be Japanese. But the con- the con- Jerry flew to Japan! <laughs> yeah. Can we just say it? It's only like four notes down here. I'm yeah. so done with this. I'm so done with this. It's Catherine. It's Catherine, Catherine. in yellow face. Yeah. It's really it's bad. It's just awful. It's really bad. It's really bad. It's really racist. And who are her contacts in Osaka? See, okay, again, it would be so much funnier if later on her assistant came back and, like, Ben tried to, like, speak some Japanese that he learned out of a book. And then the assistant was like, I have no idea what you're saying, dude. I'm Vietnamese and I've lived here my entire life. <laughs> I will say, I think... I'm not even going to say it. You know what? Never mind. I was going to say that I th- as far as like awful racist yellow face accents go, it's not it's not the most horribly offensive accent. No. But that's basically the most credence I could give it. It sounds it's... slightly less racist than like overtly racist. I, I just can't. Oh, God. Who did this? Do you think that just do you think? They had the reveal. I'm just going to skip ahead. There's a couple notes, but we'll skip really quick. A little later on, Catherine shows up at Pete's house in the middle of the night, startles him, and then kisses him on the mouth, kind of drops the character, and reveals that it's Catherine. And Pete says, you look awful, which is hilarious, and then sort of cries, says it again, and they embrace. But do you think that they chose to have this reveal happen now just so they could start to write this out of the plot i don't know i hope i hope they had the foresight to do that i hope that's what this was yeah i mean i mean i yeah it's bad two three five thumbs down this is a massive black stain on the show yeah well and I, i think that like i had forgotten how i had forgotten how awful and like offensive this subplot was because i am usually when i think of like the problematic elements of uh twin peaks i just think about the way in which to be fair the return doesn't have does not have a white person dressing up as a japanese person but it does not really improve much on david lynch's sort of use of disability to set a creepy mood um and that's that's usually what i kind of think of when i think of the problematic aspects of twin beaks um which he did not did not get any better on that one um but i yeah so i I often forget about this one but it's just not good and and again i said this last time but like uh, this is not one of those things that was like fine at the time no (laughs) like no like it was it was probably like people weren't yelling on the internet about it because there wasn't so much an internet to yell about it on but like this wasn't chill in 1990 <laughs> I mean I do think it was probably 
more chill, but, but it's not still, like not not yeah. it's not acceptable. No, uh, you know I think there's a certain element of the novel that I'm sure he was trying to get at, like oh it's Piper Laurie as an old Asian businessman, but it, it <laughs> changes nothing. I mean, <laughs> Piper Laurie could have just been disguised as a man. Yeah, yeah. He didn't have to be, be fine. Asian. Yeah, he could have been whatever. It would you know, have caused like... less potholes. No, I, I just there's nothing. This doesn't do anything. It's not funny. It's not subversive. There's no real reveal or twist to this because it's blatantly obvious that it's fucking odd and like. Yeah, even if you don't pick up on the fact that it's Piper Laurie, it's still it, it's it's obviously somebody in a lot of costuming and makeup. So there's there's obviously something weird about it. And and again, I think too like. I don't know. First of all, like, yeah, why didn't they just have her dress up as, like, an old Russian man? Like, that would have been, it, you know, like, but, like, I also think, too, that it's the show's portrayal of, I, I talked about this last time as well, so I won't reiterate the whole thing, but. Villainous Asians? Villainous Asians is just, like, doesn't, doesn't help. Like, if, it would be bad no matter what, but if there were, like, plenty of other positive representations of Asian characters in the show. But, but yeah, the, the whole thing is just, like, in, in that context, that just makes it even worse. So, yeah, not yeah. good. Not good, guys. So, uh, following this, though, I think the episode really, really gets good. And we reach the conclusion, essentially. But we get some ominous shots of the Palmer living room. Well, oh, so we we never oh. finished that scene, which is oh, that, I'm sorry, uh, right? I so, got so distracted by Tajimura is in a meeting with Ben. Ben is saying that all the contacts checked out. Um, he's bringing him in as an investor in the Ghostwood project. But then, that's when Truman, Cooper, and Hawk show up to with with the warrant for his arrest. Truman says it's police business. Ben is like, I'm in the middle of a meeting. Can we, can this wait? And then Truman is just very kind of like, all right, fine. If you don't want to step out, I'll just <laughs> say that we're arresting you for questioning or bringing you in for questioning and arresting you for the suspected murder of Laura Palmer. And then Ben is sort of dismissive and says like, I don't have time for this and says he's going to go get a sandwich. And then Hawk just tackles him. Yep. Full Nelson Sim and hauls him out. I don't like how I met your mother, but when they when Ben said I'm stepping out to get a sandwich, my first thought was that they keep using sandwich in that show as a euphemism for joint. <laughs> <laughs> and and seeing what we know later about how the uh, the horn business progresses in season three, all I could think was like, man, Ben's just gonna go smoke some weed outside right in front of the cops. Yeah. So sorry. Now we get to. Just sort of ominous uh, panning across the Palmer living room. There's a record player that's well, it's not stopped. It's still playing, but it's run out of song, so it's just clicking. And there's that shot that sort of pulls back across the rug. It's really, like, low and, and yeah. right on the rug, and it pulls it back. And I thought that was really interesting because there is that scene in the earlier episode where, in season one, where Maddie says that she had had a strange dream, um, and it was about a spot on the rug, and she was yes, like, staring yes. at it, and then she sees the the sort of shadow move across it. And so I think that this, that shot across the rug in this episode where it sort of pulls back really slowly across, I believe that section of the rug was just so good. 
Yeah. I had exactly the same thought. And this is not to just wank around about David Lynch's directing, but this was the one where I was like, oh, yes, I can I can see it just in how not even in, oh, they're just cutting to different things, but in the positioning and sort of how things are framed, just starting with an empty chair. Yeah, the framing, the way that the shots kind of move. This is where I had in my notes that you can tell when it's when it's a Lynch episode. Yeah, um, I figured. Just so good. And then we get Sarah sort of crawling down the stairs it's sort of it it focuses on her hand as it's sort of she's sort of yeah like sliding down the stairs like on her on her hands and knees kind of like on her stomach a little kind of crawling um but it's interesting because the way that the shot is so zoomed in on her hand you can't at first like really tell if she's like coming down or going up or or what's happening and then as it mm-hmm. as it pulls out you see that she's sort of slithering down the stairs yeah good word and she passes out on the floor at the bottom cooper and truman drop ben off in his holding cell as the log lady suddenly arrives to tell them there are owls in the roadhouse yeah and i i thought that was this isn't isn't really a spoiler but i thought when she says there are owls in the roadhouse i i immediately thought of how sort of central the scenes at the roadhouse are to the episodes in season three every episode ends at the roadhouse Mm-hmm. It's it's sort of been brought into the larger, um, I guess, mythos in a way that in this episode that it hasn't been before. And then that that is sustained going forward. Yeah, we see Catherine talk to Pete, da 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 da, and Sarah suddenly awakes on the floor to hallucinate a white horse. The horse! In her <laughs> living room. We've seen this horse before, yes? It's a recurring hallucination. Yeah. Cooper sees the horse at some point. Yes. I'm going to say we've seen this horse. I think we've seen the horse. Yeah, so we see she hallucinates his horse briefly before falling back asleep, and we pan over to see that Leland is putting on his suit nearby. Yeah. Seemingly unaware that Sarah is there, or uncaring at least. Yeah, and sort of adjusting his tie in the mirror. Yeah, Cooper, Truman, and the log lady, as well as James and Donna, and also Bobby later on, are all at the roadhouse for Julie Cruz's performance. I love this scene so yes, much. Yes. It's so goddamn good. Do we know if she's Julie Cruz in the world of the show or if she's credited as something else? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if it's like a, as herself or... I love any time that she's playing on stage. It's purely for that sort of aesthetic when, you know, when aesthetic, but with all the letters capitalized and a space between each of them. Yeah. <laughs> that they put on Instagram or whatever. But yeah. it's very, it's still that. The whole aesthetic of this scene is just fantastic. Which is why I think maybe they chose to end them all at the Roadhouse in season three, because it's just a great, like, with the chromatics and, and it will get there. But I, I love, I love all this stuff. And I love that style of music. It's not something I listen to very often, but it's, it's just so picture perfect and the dreamlike qualities perfectly convey what they're what they're trying to get across yes this is an aside that i'll cut out in editing but i really do support you buying a bang bang bar sign because i want that in our house we don't have to cut that out i'll plug it here there's if you feel like buying a neon bang bang bar sign on the internet you can totally do it it is not super cheap but they have different sizes and they look pretty good so if you want a cool piece of twin peaks not memorabilia exactly but merch merch yeah not a bad one. I meant I was going to cut it out more for the fact that I don't think we've uh, acknowledged that we're dating on the podcast. We could have just been living in the same house being recording partners. Uh, Donna says that she she's remorseful for Harold's death. And I, it's actually kind of a little subtle scene because James kind of tries to write it off and say, hey, he's a sick man. There was nothing you could do to help him. And she says something kind of insightful, which is 
realizes that since he was a recluse, that house was his whole life, and she feels like she violated that by doing what she did. So I like this emotionally aware Donna. I have two notes about this. The first is that I love Donna's jacket, but I think this is a really good Donna and James scene. It's refreshing after so many sort of overdone, melodramatic Donna-James scenes. This is, it has some real emotional weight to it because it is actually about something serious and Donna trying to process that. And so I, I just think this is a really good. This entire episode is much more down to earth and benefits from it a lot. Yes. Agreed. Uh, James mentions that Maddie is going home. Donna says, oh, she didn't mention that to me, which I think is a funny little touch. And as the song plays, she starts to sing it at James. And it's a cute little healing of their their rift, I think. It is, yeah. She doesn't seem to be ping-ponging between angry and horny, I guess, for lack of a better term. It's just a touching, quiet moment where they seem to connect more emotionally without some kind of tragedy or something spurring them towards it. Yeah, well, I mean, Harold Smith did hang himself. It's (laughs) You know what I mean, though? (laughs) Neither one of them is in danger, which I I think is what you mean that band. Suddenly the giant appears. Band on stage fades away. Everyone in the audience seems to stop moving, and bright light shines on Cooper, and he sees the giant saying to the microphone, it is happening again. It is happening again. He repeats it. Cooper sort of reaches for his hand, reaches for the... The ring. The ring. The lack of ring. Lack of the ring, yeah. Which I thought was a nice acting detail. Super good little detail. So what is happening again? Leland, still adjusting his tie, stares into the mirror and sees the face of Bob staring back. Yeah. So our big reveal. It seems that the parasite that is Bob has chosen the host of Leland. He puts on a pair of white gloves as Maddie descends down the stairs. She says that it smells like something is burning. And Leland, a.k.a. Bob now, sets upon her. He hits her. He grabs her. And suddenly he reverts back to Leland for a moment. And he kind of embraces her. And he's sobbing about Laura, his daughter. Yeah, and then it alternates throughout this whole scene between um, shots of, of Leland and shots of Bob as he's attacking Maddie. It keeps switching back um, between... Bob sort of making you know kind of like these like guttural enraged noises as he's as he's assaulting Maddie and then Leland sobbing and and crying as he's assaulting Maddie basically so it's it's he kind of tries to dance with her a little bit is sort of what he's doing yeah and I read part of it an article a while ago and I'll I don't remember what it's called but I'll link to it in the show notes or the description but about the way that this scene operates to kind of it goes back to what I keep saying about how the show the multiple levels that the show works on in which this piece was kind of talking about like the portrayal of violence and trauma in this scene as capturing like that this is for Leland a complicated and sort of emotionally layered event and and that it includes a lot of grief but that for Maddie it is just this sort of sudden outburst of this monstrous force from a person she trusts and that it it works to sort of both complicate the perspective of a person who would do this kind of thing um, right in showing that like there is grief here for Leland as he does this while still acknowledging the the horror and the violence of it and not in any 
anyway excusing it and I just that's not that's not an original analysis like I said I'll, I'll link to where I read it but I just thought that was a really brilliant interpretation of this scene no that is good I actually I had not as well articulated but a similar line of thought when it comes to that and I think when you we won't go any further all we know now is that Leland after a moment of embracing her reverts back to Bob and during the Bob parts they also throw on some slow motion and they put on a bunch of noise distortion and and flashes and whatnot to convey that kind of otherworldly sense and finally he grabs her by the head and smashes her face first into a painting this was what i was talking about earlier in which the missoula montana painting does kind of come back it's the missoula montana painting that we saw in the earlier shot that he smashes her into i think and he does yell something as he does about her saying that she was going to go back to missoula and so he he's clearly like enraged by this and smashes her into the missoula painting so it's like a in little a way she does go back to missoula well I think it's kind of a twisted joke. And then he immediately, this part is comedic, although not intentionally, he inserts the letter O below her fingernail, <laughs> but he has it already prepped on <laughs> like a little razor blade to put in. Yeah. And all I could think was like, wait, what, where? You had this one good to go? At least they like, even though they clearly just kind of forgot about this plot point and then were like, oh, he's spelling Robertson. At least they are consistent and <laughs> that he does put a, a letter below her fingernail. So then we're back to the roadhouse. This is the scene I wanted to talk about. The first thing that I have to say is that Bobby is drinking at the bar in this scene. And I just assumed that, because I I don't know what the laws were in the 90s. I just assumed that this was when the drinking age was still 18. But I looked it up out of curiosity the other day. And A, the drinking age became 21 nationally in the like late 80s, like 87 or something. And B, the drinking age was never 18 in Washington state. So... I don't know. Nobody in the town of Twin Peaks checks IDs, apparently. No, they all have fake saying. IDs. Bobby definitely has a fake ID. Are Donna and James drinking? They're not, but Bobby drinks in public in other scenes. But that's still illegal, even if you're 21. Bobby just doesn't give a fuck. He's like a honey badger. Bobby badger. Honey Bobby. Oh, boy. I guess maybe, like, just nobody cared about underage drinking as much. Well, the town is so traumatized that Sheriff Truman just said, you know what? Lay off checking the IDs for a while. Everyone needs a couple drinks. Drink your problems away. I mean, to be fair, Truman does later. Yeah. But yeah, so we're back at the roadhouse. Yeah, the giant disappears from the stage. And the old man from the Great Northern who was there right before Cooper got shot, or right after Cooper got shot, comes over to tell Cooper that he's sorry. And as he does that, everyone in the bar or at least the main characters are all suddenly overcome with a sense of melancholy or sadness donna starts to tear up bobby is just sort of looking off into space and cooper i don't know if cooper seems melancholy but he's everyone's very quiet and he he's kind of staring off in space too and they have this he does a cool little thing where it's it's in slow motion but since no one's moving it's very hard to tell it's in slow motion but it Mm -hmm. adds just a really subtle layer of distortion to it yeah i really like this as a this as kind of a closing scene i think the the atmosphere is just really well crafted here in terms of how the actors are portraying it the music the way it's shot it's just all really good and the whole structure of the episode leads to this crescendo and then this quiet falling action where no one knows what has happened again but everyone not just cooper seems to be affected by it yeah and that's the end julie cruz finishes her song as people sort of stare off listlessly and... Yeah, and then it kind of transitions from the curtains behind them at the roadhouse the, uh, behind Julie Cruz into just like the general Twin Peaks red curtains Yes. Uh, as it goes to credits. So yeah, I love this episode. 
It's really good. It's so good. <sighs> I I wasn't sold at first. I sort of forgot how much comes to a head here. But like I said, I think it's so well structured and paced that it just gets better and better as it goes. Well, and this is what I was saying too about how it's, you know, I, di I didn't want to give all the credit to David Lynch because I think that you can also tell that this is a Mark Frost written episode because... The way it's shot and the way it's paced is really good, but also just the writing. I, I, it's, this episode is very, it's very subtle and it's very artful in the way it communicates things through the character's dialogue. I think that like, which is especially refreshing after the kind of overdone melodramatic scenes in the past couple of episodes that this just has these really like subtle but very intense moments. The scene with Audrey and Ben when she's interrogating him about One-Eyed Jacks, the scenes with James and Donna at the roadhouse, the dialogue and the tone and the way that they're acted is just all really on point. I don't want to say this is the last good episode. This may be one of the last great episodes until yeah. we get to the very end. And it's very much a climax of yeah. things. We get a reveal of Leland being possessed by Bob, yeah, eight is good. Episode eight is good. Um, yes. But I think that seven, this episode, is on par with, with like the first episode of season two and episode three of season one, which is the Red Room episode, in terms of just moments where the show really peaks. Eight in season two is good. It's not quite up there. No, I think with Ben getting arrested, Maddie suddenly becoming, I don't want to say relevant, but there's sort of a, oh, she was sort of here to die, I see. Yeah. I, I want to dip into spoilers before we run out of time. Um, Let's put on a spoiler tag here. Spoiler um, tag. Talking about Maddie, I, I made a note that I find myself re-watching all of the scenes with Sarah in a very different light after season three. The two things that are interesting to me are the way in which both Leland and Sarah look sort of taken aback when Maddie announces that she's leaving. And Leland is, he looks saddened by it, but he's, he's sort of like... Oh, of course, like we understand. Sarah seems very off-put by it. And the other thing that I thought was interesting was that Sarah is, she's passed out, but she is in the room when Leland slash Bob kills Maddie. And yes. I think in relation to the Sarah Judy stuff that we get in season three, that all just had, I didn't want to go in and be like, oh, it means this exact thing. But those moments just had more resonance for me in light of that, for sure. Yeah. Well, I thought when she when she's crawling down the stairs, she's kind of moaning, but she does say, oh, Leland. Yeah. So some hint that perhaps she is aware of what he's done, but has sort of repressed it so much that it only comes out. She's drugged, I guess, is why she's passed out. Right. Is right. my guess. Uh, yeah. So it sort of makes it that much more tragic that this is, especially with the idea that Leland has been doing this for a long time, that he was, has been Bob for a while and has been molesting Laura for right. a lot of her life. Mm-hmm makes the fact that yeah sarah may kind of know and makes her hysteria and her continued hysteria throughout the seasons make more sense yeah well so i that was the only spoiler thing i had i think we can probably come out of spoilers for this which is that out of spoilers out of spoilers but yeah i, I think your your point that it's sort of implied that sarah kind of knows what's going on but that it's very repressed another part of the show that works really well and that that sort of works on multiple levels and once you know this about Leland slash Bob, it sort of shifts the paradigm for Sarah's reaction to everything. And I think that 
it is another one of those moments where you sort of see like in the in the scene with Leland and Ben in the last episode where you sort of see like Leland like regardless of being possessed by Bob is like just also just not really a super good dude like you know he's kind of scheming with Ben Horn and he's just not really that good of a person it's sort of like Sarah also was is maybe kind of you know, intentionally repressing her awareness of sort of what's going on with all of this. One little thing we did miss was that Cooper tells Truman that he thinks that the final part of the giant's prophecy without chemicals he points was fulfilled because when Mike was seizuring, he pointed to Ben. Yeah. So that also also fuels their arrest of him. Kind of wraps that up. So that's cool. Yeah, which I thought was interesting. I, I actually thought in retrospect, I thought that scene was very well done because he does start sort of looking increasingly uncomfortable, right? Because like we know by the end of the episode that Ben is not Bob. And so it's kind of like, well, why did he have that reaction? But if you if you look back at it, I did because I was just kind of, I was a little confused by that, but I looked back and he does start to look increasingly uncomfortable well before Ben actually gets there. They do that really well where it does seem like it's a reaction to Ben, but then if you look back at it, maybe it's not. It's just sort of an increasing level of pain and discomfort Mm -hmm. from possessing Mr. Gerard and, and the arm. So I just thought that was, I thought that was a neat, neat little detail. They did that well. Yeah. In summation, I think this is one of the best we've seen in a while. And it really just pulls a lot of the threads together. It brings a lot of the oomph, to use a technical term, back to the show, I think. And really gives us a watershed moment to spur on the rest of it. Which I think it needed. It uh, needed, yeah. Especially the last episode being so much filler. And then this one, that one big reveal at the end. It was nice to have an episode that was really focused on the actual murder investigation. The supernatural stuff, Bob. And use those subplots sort of as they were meant to be used. Which was to sort of just fill out some beats and have some continuing characters. Some characters continue to appear. But they weren't the bulk of the show so yeah so 9.5 owls out of 10 a full nest almost agreed agreed join us next time we'll be reviewing uh the next one (laughs) (laughs) a a drive with a dead girl oh is that what it's called it is what it's called weird yeah really what all of david lynch's productions yeah you could probably subtitle a lot of them like that Mulholland Drive for sure <laughs> did you know that he uh when Laura Dern was last nominated for an Oscar he campaigned by sitting on a street corner in LA with a live cow <laughs> are you serious I am serious it was his birthday yesterday so happy birthday David Lynch happy birthday David Lynch this will come out way in advance of or way after we've actually recorded this but I want to seem like we're hip we know what's going on well we do it's I'm just saying it'll be like we're six episodes ahead of what we're releasing so um but I also want to mention and I'll toss in my off-topic review right here at the end of the podcast that to celebrate his birthday David Lynch released the weirdest fucking short film on Netflix it's called what did Jack do there's a monkey it's 17 minutes Go watch it. It is a delightful bunch of absolutely nonsensical dialogue. The monkey has the CGI quality of a Snapchat filter. Yes. I don't know who lets this man get away with this shit, but you know what? I came across it last night after two glasses of wine, and I was very into it, so. See, I thought it was a live monkey. The fact that it's a CGI monkey makes this way more intriguing well so like it's it is a live monkey it's a live monkey with a human mouth it's a live monkey that they (laughs) 
<laughs> it's a live monkey that they've then CGI'd on over the person who's voicing the monkey in the way that Snapchat filters will like put a dog over your face and then keep right. your mouth. Yeah, yeah. I I would not be surprised if they use, did not use that exact technology. <laughs> <laughs> well, if that sounds interesting to you, go check that out on Netflix. If not, we will see you next time here live from the Great Northern. Bye.